my goodness, scorekeepers, we are back again. It is time for another episode of The Score, your favorite podcast all about classical music and opera and pop culture and the arts from the perspective of three Black queer administrators. As always, I am Rocky Jones, and I'm here with my two fabulous co-hosts, first and foremost, the wonderful, the luminescent, the radiant Paige Reynolds, Iyawo Inawale. Hello, Paige. Hey, luminescent. I like mm-hmm. that one. <laughs> mm-hmm. You love every room you go into. You know Aw, it. shucks. <laughs> How has your week been? It's been good. It's been good. You know what? Let me give you a little nugget. Uh, luminescent is fitting because the name Inawale means hmm. fire enters the house. Oh, we'll oh. see. There you go. In Yoruba. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you should put that in your uh, Insta bio. Oh, luminescent. Hey, you're right. You're right. That's a new <laughs> I mean, tagline. I mean, okay. I'm just saying. <laughs> you know what? I should get into branding. Shoot. <laughs> and here by the numbers is <laughs> our other fabulous co-host the brilliant dr lee Bynum. hello dr lee Bynum. hello how, how are, are you, you? Oh, I'm, I'm well things are things are going just swimmingly out here in the big apple yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. exciting. So now that you've been about a month into it, how mm-hmm. are how are things at the new gig at Lincoln Center? Things are going well. Everyone is still on their best behavior and I hope they remain there. That's where <laughs> I like people. <laughs> um and this has, you know, been an uncharacteristically uh warm and pleasant winter here in new york we did get our first snow this past week Mm. um and a bunch of stuff closed and it you know it's i don't know four inches maybe three four inches Mm. um and i (laughs) remember laughing to myself like this isn't snow (laughs) this is nothing (laughs) that's that's cute (laughs) it actually it was cute i i did um take the day and not go into the office. I did work from home because while I thought it was cute, I know New Yorkers do not think three inches of snow is cute. Mm -hmm. And people in New York get quite ugly when it is either snowing or raining or too hot or windy. Or Or too cold. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) just (laughs) all of the above. (laughs) New Yorkers don't like their weather patterns. Or when Um, it's sunny and 70. (laughs) (laughs) Right, 75 degrees, perfectly sunny, and everybody's still grouchy about that. Um, But yeah, we've been having a, a very nice time. So far, so good, I will say. Good, good. And everyone's outfits are matching and... People have, I've seen a lot of clothes on point since I've come back. That has been a treat. I have forgotten that people do fashions here, even when they're not Mm -hmm. doing anything. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of people (laughs) will, you know, still put on their, their finest feathers, full face of makeup, six inch heels to go to the drugstore just because that is what we're doing on a given day and I'm not mad at it. <laughs> not participating in it, but also not mad at it. <laughs> you know, I always had this like vision when I was in high school of like going to college and like people like 
shuffling into their morning classes in their pajamas and stuff like that. I only did that but one time <laughs> in September at Columbia and everyone looked at me like I was crazy and I was like okay so I guess I'm gonna have to get up a little bit earlier and put together an outfit. <laughs> As one who went to Howard University I completely understand. It is also the mecca of not just education but fashion yes. looks. Yes. Okay, yes. a designer yes. bag and uh and shoes tiptoeing across the yard to your, to your class. <laughs> um, I don't know that sweatpants, pajamas, mm -mm. messy hair look. <laughs> um, yeah, that's never been my narrative. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's something about going to school in a big city mm -hmm. that really it. does shift you know like that that mm -hmm. piece of it because there's a whole life that happens outside of campus right like you're not dependent mm -hmm. on the quad to define your entire existence i mean that's what i attributed to anyway well yeah. it's strange because like columbia does have a quad so i was just kind of thinking like oh maybe there's quad culture like you know it's like low summers and all of those yeah yeah i mean we had our institutions little... but like <laughs> yeah no no it was not okay <laughs> i learned that real quick and it was so surprising because i got most stylish in high school in the senior yearbook so <laughs> you would think i would know better <laughs> we're like oh i am now a little fish in a big uh -huh. pond yes <laughs> a big very stylish pond <laughs> Columbia said, you're going to learn today. <laughs> Mommy, I need money for leather pants. <laughs> it's the early odds. <laughs> well, I remember when that um, H&M opened around maybe oh, like yes. a 125. Oh, honey. Oh, yes. I lived at the H&M. <laughs> when I tell you the one on, I think it's the one life. on Fifth Avenue. And I, that green jacket that is in that picture of me when I was, I'm singing in the mm -hmm. band. That's H&M. Uh -huh. Oh, I lived mm -hmm. at H&M. Oh my God. Oh yeah. <laughs> On my little it was very much like, oh and... girl, we have, we're going to what this weekend? Okay, we're going to run to H&M. <laughs> the Forever 21 is just a block away right next to it. So we'll go there if we don't find nothing. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's imported from Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> it's giving you European fashion style. Yes. <laughs> oh no it disintegrated in the washing machine oh, well. it was four dollars that's okay right. you got one good use out oh, of it yes. you know yeah so. mm -hmm. i was seen for one night i got my pictures i got some numbers and so it was worth it unless h&m wants to sponsor this in which case they are beautiful clothes of <laughs> the highest quality. <laughs> Every time I think about H&M, though, I can't separate it from when Rue read those girls mm. for wearing H&M on the runway. I won't repeat that expletive-laden rant, but it was, it was very clear that where you won't wear H&M is on the RuPaul runway and and maybe that's appropriate right like well, that's but like that know. i mean if i was rupaul i probably would have had the same reaction because joe black was just so yeah. i don't what is even the word like kind of smug and proud of it 
<laughs> like it's H and M. Like the like deal, girl. That's not how this works. Not at all. <laughs> like a mess. So <laughs> I'm just saying. That's the thing. Mm -hmm. That only works if you put on the H&M or Forever 21 and then you turn it. Yes. That's the only yes. way that works. Because then it's like, what? You you turned a little H&M bodysuit into what? Mm -hmm. And then, mm -hmm. but if it's just, if it if it goes out looking like it came from H&M. Right. Yes. You have a problem. Because usually like when it comes to like Michelle's critiques about like, you know, oh, like, you know, you should be able to take like, you know, a hefty garbage bag and turn it into something like beautiful or whatever. Like, I understand what she's saying, but I do think that there is sort of like a discrepancy between like, you know, some queens who have $20,000 mm -hmm. for their drag mm -hmm. and some queens that like do not have that type of money. But like at the same point, it's just like, okay, if you're going to go and you're going to get something from H&M, yeah, you totally can go and go to Michael's Mm -hmm. Get yourself mm -hmm. some bedazzles mm -hmm. and do mm -hmm. something with it. Like yeah. you can't just like like she literally just walked down the the runway in her little knitted mauve H and M dress, and it was just like no, honey. That it's it's just it's it's the artistry. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Sense. You start with it, you don't end with it. And exactly. I think that's kind of how you have to drive that one. In case anybody wants me to be a guest judge on the RuPaul show, hint, hint. I'd be absolutely amazing. Clearly, we have opinions. Mm -hmm. Or like we have a lot of fashion police. <laughs> God rest Joan Riversoul. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and of course, I miss seeing Nene Leakes on my television. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do, I do. But enough of that. <laughs> um, you had a big night last night, Lee. I did. I went to my you first do? concert since moving back to New York City. I went to oh. David Geffen Hall, the new space at Lincoln Center, mm. and heard a remarkable evening of music at the New York Philharmonic. Um, three Black composers, two of them alive and well, um, were featured last night. And um, it was just like an evening of Black excellence that I was so happy to be a part of. Um, Adolphus Hailstork, who has been on this show, had a piece last night. Um, Courtney Bryan, who hopefully will be on the show soon, had a piece last night. She and I go way back to grad school. Um, I'll, I'll tell a very embarrassing story about myself, how I met her at some point, because <laughs> it's absolutely a shame. I'll tell it um, now. I'll tell it now. Okay. Yeah, because now um, I'm curious. <laughs> you can't just um, say that. I can't just say <laughs> it now. I have to tell. So there's this thing that usually happens at the beginning of the semester where a lot of departments would have receptions uh, for like their incoming graduate students. So my friend and I um, decided that we would pretend to be grad students in like five different departments and just like get a couple of free drinks and get our night going. 
So we were in the English department. We went to the philosophy department. They, they knew we didn't belong there. They're like, we, do we have two black grad students in philosophy? We were like, oh, oh, it's an English department. So we were just visiting uh, To be or not to be in this <laughs> department. <laughs> Plato, Socrates. <laughs> so, but, you know, we were... is philosophy anyway? <laughs> uh, my philosophy is getting free drinks. Yeah. So we were maybe four or five drinks in, and we heard um, in the graduate student lounge, the windows were open, we could hear someone playing beautifully and they were playing Stevie Wonder. I don't, I don't remember what they were playing, but it, it was just absolutely beautiful. And my friend and I were like, oh, let's go in and find out who's in here playing. And there we saw Courtney at the piano playing. And we we're like, oh my God, it's a, a black grad student that we don't know. Um, so we made our way over and we introduced ourselves and we were like, who are you? And she's like, I'm Courtney, I'm from New Orleans, blah, 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 blah. And she's playing, playing Stevie Wonder, who is one of my all time favorite singers. And because I was, you know, a little north of tipsy, I said, oh, why don't you play my favorite Stevie song and I will sing along. Mind you, the graduate student, I was like, people are in there like reading, doing work, typing like this was not oh. the place to have a little piece of concert oh, um so i suggested <laughs> she play overjoyed and started playing and i sung the first line it was beautiful and then the second line didn't come or the third line and i realized as much as i like the song i actually don't know the words to it so there she was playing and i'm just mm -hmm. And everybody's just staring at the random drunk person at the piano in the middle of the graduate lounge, giving a concert to a song that they clearly don't know. Um, and people apparently remembered it because years later I had people still remember, oh yeah, you were that guy from the graduate student lounge today randomly singing a song you didn't know. But that's how I met Courtney. Oh, um, that's and, fun. You know, now she's having <laughs> compositions premieres at the New York Phil, at the LA Phil, um, and I still don't know the words to Overjoyed. So it's like but an I'm American Idol audition from 2005. <laughs> 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 oh, well, that's fun. Well, I'm glad you yeah. all stayed friends. Yeah, despite yeah. that, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was great to to hear her piece on the stage last night. Um, and it was also great to see so many people of color. Leslie Don uh, Donner was the conductor. Taswell Thompson was the director. Janina Burnett yes. was um, Janina. a featured soprano. Yeah, it was great. There was a, a wonderful chorus. Simon Estes was there, Ryan Speedo Green, um, and then uh, William Grant Still, Adolphus Hale Stork, um, and Courtney's piece. And it was just great. And then, you know, afterwards, you know, getting to see so many um, Black classical music luminaries at the reception, including Tanya Leone. Um, it was just very exciting to me and made me feel like um, after spending so much time doing EDI in the space, that this was an instance of seeing something realized right like meeting some of my counterparts at the new york phil several black administrators and um well positioned in their roles 
And here we are in March. It's not even February, right? Like th mm -hmm. these kinds of things didn't even usually <laughs> happen mm -hmm. outside of that lovely little 28 day block. So it felt like a, a bit of a really wonderful way to, to be embraced into a new community. So a new old community, uh, since I knew all these people a long time ago, but yeah, it was great. Really, really enjoyed it. And, um, looking forward to more instances of black excellence on the grounds of Lincoln center. Yeah. That is just okay. so amazing. Uh, I love it. I was it. overjoyed. I'm sure you were. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it reminds me of like the feeling me and Rocky are talking about when we were at Sphinx. That's exactly what I was thinking. Watching that mm -hmm. concert. And we were just like, oh, if it was like this all the time, yes. like just mm -hmm. being in the audience with our people, looking on the stage and seeing your people. Mm -hmm. It was just like a completely different vibe from mm -hmm. most other. Yeah. Yeah, most any any other time I've seen a symphony orchestra pretty much like it was completely different. And it also like sometimes it's like, see, it could all be so simple. <laughs> <laughs> Just like hand it over. Let us program the show, pick the composers, pick mm -hmm. the pick the directors, mm -hmm. have all the brown and black folks on stage. Stop worrying mm -hmm. about the quality. It's going to be a great time. We're going to do be amazing because mm -hmm. we have been taught that we have to live and breathe excellence all the time. So that yeah. so, of course, uh, it's going to be great. Hand it over and see what happens. <laughs> Uh, gosh, if only someday, if only. someday, <laughs> right? You know, it's, it's all going to bear beautiful fruit one day. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, one day is actually coming up pretty soon. Actually. Oh? Yes. Actually oh. tomorrow at Minnesota oh. Opera. Oh, yes. Tomorrow at Minnesota Opera. Well, the world <laughs> premiere of the song poet happens tomorrow at Minnesota Already? Opera. Yes. Oh, well, look at that. This is, <laughs> <time goes by. laughs> this is getting released next week. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, yes, in future times, tomorrow. <laughs> oh, the wonders of the internet. Like, I'm really right. sitting here confused. I'm like, oh, wow. That's right. We're speaking, okay. <laughs> We're speaking to the future. Okay. We're speaking to the future. No, tomorrow, March. Uh, Good Lord, March 9th um, is right. when the uh, song poet um, debuts at the Luminary Arts Center. It is the first Hmong story set to opera. Absolutely. And it is sung both in English and Hmong. Uh, it incorporates a number of um, uh, Hmong song poetry elements um, in the score, which is super excited, which is um, by a composer named Jocelyn Hagen. And of course, the libretto is by one of our next guests, the author of the song poet, 
the amazing Cal Kalia Yang. And if that wasn't enough, we're also going to be joined by Josephine Yang, who uh, is Minnesota Opera's community engagement consultant and has worked with us um, on um, promoting the song poet and getting it out there and making sure that the Hmong community is involved with everything um, song poet and making sure that people get to see the show and hear the wonderful music. Um, and so I'm super excited because we had such a great conversation with them um, that, I, I mean, I think it's one of the best conversations that we've ever had, but that's because of Kalia and Josephine and how just brilliant and eloquent, <laughs> just beautiful speakers, both they of them. Really beautiful. Both were. I just mean, speaking in poetry. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, it's amazing. So... Please stay tuned for that conversation. It's a wonderful, wonderful conversation. And if you can, I think there are some uh, seats still left on a couple of days. Um, it's mostly sold out, but um, go check out mnopera.org and um, check out this wonderful, wonderful show if you can. Um, and we'll be right back with Cal Kalia Yang and Josephine Yang right after this. All right, everybody, we are back. We are so, so excited to have our next two guests on the show today. Um, and, and we're so excited in particular because tomorrow a huge momentous event is happening at the Luminary Arts Center in Minneapolis, an event that is literally years and years in the making. Mm -hmm. And that is the opening finally of the song poet, the first Hmong story adapted for the operatic stage. St. Paul writer Kao Kalia Yang's memoir, The Song Poet, comes to life in this world premiere opera, and it tells the story of her family and her song poet father as war drives them from the mountains of Laos into a Thai refugee camp and ultimately onto the challenging world of life as refugees here in the United States. With his poetry, uh, Kalia's father inspires hope in his family, polishing their reality so that they might shine. Um, it's an incredibly powerful, moving, beautiful story. Can't wait for everyone to see it come to life. And we have two incredible guests here to talk about the song poet, to talk about Hmong history and culture here in the Twin Cities. First, we have Kalia herself. Kalia Yang is a Hmong American writer, the author of the memoirs, The Late Homecomer, a Hmong family memoir, The Song Poet, and Somewhere in the Unknown World. She's also written the children's book, A Map into the World, The Shared Room, The Most Beautiful Thing, Yang Warriors, and From the Tops of the Trees. She's co-edited the groundbreaking collection, What God is Honored Here, Writings on Miscarriage and Infant Loss by and for Native Women and Women of Color. And of course, she wrote the libretto for The Song Poet, which, like I said, premieres tomorrow. Um, her work has been recognized by so many organizations, um, the National Endowment for the Arts, the National Book Critic Circle, uh, National Book Critics Circle Award, the Chautauqua Prize, the Penn USA Literary Awards, the Dayton's Literary Peace Prize, so, so many 
other organizations, the Asian Pacific American Award for Literature, and four Minnesota Book Awards. Uh, she's also the recipient of the Sally Award from the Ordway Center for the Performing Arts for Social Impact, and the A.P. Anderson Award for her significant contributions to the cultural and artistic life of Minnesota. And as if, as if that's not enough, she's also a teacher and a public speaker. <laughs> so, uh, Kalia, we are so excited to have you on the show. Welcome, welcome, welcome to The Score. Thank you so much for having me. Of and course, that of was course. like a long introduction, Rocky. I'm going to have to look at the language of the introduction. Well, you know, we like to give everyone their flowers. So we like to read the whole thing to make sure everybody knows because like Thank you get you. that respect. But if that's not all, we are also joined by our friend and colleague, Josephine Yang. Josephine is a, uh, an, a, a Hmong American artist and arts administrator. She currently serves as the artistic and equity coordinator at Children's Theater Company, where her work supports the internal justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion efforts of the company. I've been to that party along with their work in new play development and community partnerships. Most recently hosting post-show conversations with community leaders, expanding on the social topics highlighted by performances on stage. Uh, in 2022, she joined Minnesota Opera as the community engagement consultant for the song poet. Outside of her work in the art, in arts administration, uh, Yang focuses on cultivating her craft as a photographer, a poet, and a singer-songwriter, and her bodies of work aim to document truth evoke healing and center common ground welcome to the show josie hello hello everyone hello. for having me i'm so excited we are so excited to have you both here this is so exciting and especially on the eve of the song poets premiere how are you all feeling about this show finally coming to life it has been years and years in the making like when song poets started we didn't even know what a COVID-19 was we didn't know <laughs> any of that stuff like it's been it's been a long process and it's finally here how are you feeling we'll start with you Kalia blessed blessed and thankful you know it's been a long journey as you pointed out it's been a journey full of many shifts and many changes in the five years or so that it has taken you know I hope I've matured in different ways and that I mean, it's such a gift that this thing will be real tomorrow. So blessed. Yeah, I'm thrilled. I, um, you know, have been a part of this project for a little under a year, but being able to can, you know, engage with different community members has been so heartwarming. Um, you know, I actually was just talking to uh, one of our Hmong student groups yesterday, and um, she's a board member. And shout out to Gaofei, HSA. And she was just talking about how excited she was to see herself represented on stage. And she was talking about how um, her and her board were just so uh, grateful and excited to see a story that they would have never expected to see. Um, and she was really excited to see how this could inspire the, the next generation of Hmong artists. And um, yeah, she really, she literally just took the words out of my mouth and I told her that's that's exactly what my work uh, you know related to the song poet is all about so I'm thrilled to be a part of such a beautiful collaboration I I think like we've alluded to the twist and turns of of the process and you know all the unexpected changes or shifts and 
I wonder like if you could talk a little bit about what that process has been like from your two different vantage points. I mean, they're both interesting and I, I get the impression that like for both of you, this is something unique, you know, um, really unique that you've gotten to engage in. So what's that process been like for you? For me, it's been such, you know, it began as a youth opera and, and you're right. This is a unique experience for me. I'm a writer of books for children and adults. The world of opera is a world that has not been accessible to so many people like me as in I'm here speaking as a new immigrant, a new American, a refugee of war, but also somebody who grew up with a very limited income. And so whenever I started going, I think I went to my first opera at Carleton College in the trio program. We had this, my wonderful, beautiful mentor, Rada Turner took us so that we would know opera. And I remember getting all dressed up in, in my junior year of college and going and then promptly sitting down and falling asleep. And when I, when I um, went to graduate school, yeah, I was in New York City. And so of course there was the Met and we took advantage of the student tickets, my roommates and I, but the same thing happened. I would sit there, the music would start swelling and I would knock out, you know? So when the opportunity <laughs> came, I was so keen that it would be something entirely new, entirely different. My role in the project was, you know, I wrote the book and I was gonna serve kind of like an auxiliary consultant perhaps. Um, but it's shifted. I became, of course, the librettist. The thing became a bigger thing. Instead of just a youth opera, it became a main stage production. And of course, this is, um, I mean, Lee Bynum is here and Lee has been a champion of the work as well as others in the company. And so it's it's an incredible opportunity, not only for little girl me, but also the artistic you know, side of me, the artistic heart of me. How do I translate the story into songs, capture those moments into like, into this medium and hopefully inspire of course the composer it was a different challenge and it's such a beautiful mm -hmm. opportunity but also a humbling reminder that sometimes the things that we don't think we know how to do it's because we've never had the opportunity like human beings are learners this is why we're all here we've learned different things in and out of our you know the, the normal realm of our being and so in that way it's really empowered me personally but even more importantly I hope that it shows like Josie and these younger artists that given the opportunity we can do the things we never imagined for ourselves and be part of things that are way bigger than ourselves. Elia, it is so hard to follow you. You are such an eloquent speaker and you speak <laughs> in poetry, which I love. <laughs> um it's been a calling it's 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 been a calling to come back home for me. That's the best way I can say it. Um, it's It's been such a beautiful opportunity to professionally be pushed to reconnect back to my roots and to my heritage in a way that I've yet to have the opportunity to do. It's really pushed me to rediscover historically just information about our people and where we come from. That was really important to me because I felt like if I was to be the consultant and, and the face essentially for our community in this project, I really wanted to show up correct. And um, it, it was mm -hmm. such a beautiful responsibility and I didn't want to take it lightly. And so I think for me, my vantage point has just been, um, you know, really ensuring that while I'm extremely familiar with the Mo American perspective, 
um, and an experience as, as a, you know, 30 year old millennial in America, I really needed to rediscover the lens and the story of our Hmong people um, from a multi-generational lens expanded from my personal lived experiences and the conversations that I've had with different people in my life, with my parents, with my younger siblings, with some elders. Um, so it, it's been a really beautiful calling back to home. Paige, and I'll just add this little bit because it's so beautifully aligned. You know, when I first became a writer, it was because I was writing love letters to my grandma who had died and my father came mm. into the room and he said, what are you doing? And I told him writing love letters. And my dad said to me, if you dream in the right direction, the, the dreamer never wakes up. The dream grows bigger and bigger. And that is so much the story of the song wow. poet and our relationship with the Minnesota opera. It's gotten bigger and bigger. Mm, that's gorgeous <laughs> yeah I have um I have so many questions for the two of you but maybe we can start um with what has sort of um emerged as being the most significant opportunity for me with being a part a small part of bringing this opera to the stage has been the timing of it right and like really thinking about what it means to be doing this piece right now when we have seen this really unfortunate reemergence of anti-Asian, anti-Asian American, and a perhaps more generally xenophobic um, flair of, of violence, right? Violent language, violent imagery, and, and physical violence as well. Has there been something about the timing of this that has represented a significant opportunity for either of you? That's a wonderful question, Lee. And Josie, this time I'll let you go first. Would you like to go first? Sure. Thanks, Kelly. You know, I was still thinking on it because it's it's a, it's a heavy but important question. So um, I would say for myself, I think it, it further, oops, excuse me, um, for me, it, it, it further pushes the importance of why our stories matter, um, specifically from a Hmong lens, um, you know, when speaking through the Hmong diaspora, when I think about our history and I think about how we have experienced thousands of years of genocide and persecution as a people and how we've constantly been forced to migrate into, into different areas as survival tactics. And along the way, we've had to find ways to fit into other ethnic groups, right? To mask our moanness in order to not be points of target. Um, you know, I, I think about that history and and how it impacts the importance of showing up now with our stories and how being an artist and participating in these art forms says, hey, I'm here still and I exist and I matter and my stories matter. And so I think about that weight that I carry when participating in this type of work. And I, I think about that layered with the timing in which this is coming out and the anti-Asian, um, you know, hate narratives that are also in existence. And, and for me, it, it further just pushes the importance of why our stories matter. It further pushes um, the resilience I think we have as a people, um, which which I think is 
you know, which I think can be spread across multiple communities, but I think specifically, you know, speaking through the Hmong and Asian lens, I think, um, I think to have this story on this platform with the Minnesota Opera, I think it, I, I hope it also shows, you know, communities outside of our Hmong community that, um, hey, we're here and, you know, whatever is thrown our way, you know, we've, we've, we've been through some things and, <laughs> and, um, and we're always going to find a way to, to come out top and we're always going to find a way to remain true to ourselves and our culture. Um, and, and I think for me, it's, it's, it's a beautiful, um, it's a beautiful mesh of taking what can be, of taking the ugly and and still finding a way to push through with beauty and connection if that makes sense <laughs> it does and it's so beautiful Josie you know for me I think about it two ways Lee we live in a world that is continually at war you know there are all kinds of wars across the landscape of this nation and then the landscape of the world we live in a world that is creating more and more refugees all the time you know, this is a Hmong story, but it's very much a story of refugees as well. And Minnesota, surprisingly to so many, is home to more refugees per capita than any other state in the nation. Not high up in diversity, but refugees. And I, and I think it puts an important and necessary spotlight. Minnesota is very, in my mind anyway, the heart of America, the heartland, right? You stretch your arms wide, we're somewhere near the middle. Um, and yet it is... It's a reality that we really haven't discussed as a community, um, how we, even in places like this, can be more welcoming of others, lean from so much. So that's one piece of it. And then the other piece of it that I think is so important, when I sat through auditions particularly, was to see the, 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 like the spread of Asians and Asian Americans, Asians from around the world and Asian Americans auditioning for these roles. You know, I'm not from the world of opera, but I know enough about the politics of the arts to understand that there aren't that many roles, beautifully whole, respectful, dignified roles for Asian Americans on, and Asians in, in opera. Immediately, of course, from where I'm positioned, you think about Madame Butterfly and the travesty of that representation. And so in so many ways, it allows for a collaborative stance on the stage that I think is so beautiful. I don't know how many people and the audience will be able to identify, OMG, that is a lot of Asians from many different countries and cultures on stage. Um, but that is that is one of the gifts of this process, especially, I think, and you're right, Lee, the timing. That kind of stance, you know, the term Asian American itself emerged out of this activist mode of understanding that no matter where we come from, when people look at us, they often see the same thing or there is so much unseen. And, and so that for me is really beautiful and optimistic, you know, and I, I brought in Minnesota as this, you know, home of refugees, but Minnesota is also the state that killed George Floyd. It is a state that just killed last week a 65-year-old Hmong elder that couldn't speak English and was unable to hear. And, and so that violence, I think it forces a kind of internal reflection. Who are we and what do we wanna be? And this is Minnesota specific, but it's also so American. You know, we've heard more about wars because of what's happening in Europe than we've heard in years about all of these refugees coming out and what's happening. And all of us on this show know exactly why. Because America is a racist nation. 
Um, and so I'm hoping that the show, while it is about Hmong people and refugees, that it forces a kind of reflection, internal reflection. You know, I always rest on the words of my elders and my grandma always said that the seed of change would be inspiration, that it could never be forced. And so I'm hoping, desperately hoping that this, that this production will allow for that kind of inspiration to grow in the hearts of those who get to see it, who get to be a part of it. Wow, that that's beautiful. Um, you know, I um, so a few months ago, uh, we have a uh, a series of of lectures that we do here at Minnesota Opera called Creative Disruptions um, that was conceived by our very own Paige Reynolds and uh, currently is being um, curated and run by the friend of the show, Frankie Charles and, and Samuel Phillips, of course. And um, Josie, you um, came and you talked to us um, a few months ago um, about, um, you know, Hmong history, um and and culture um especially here in the twin cities and so i i rewatched it a couple of days ago because i wanted to get myself in the headspace for this conversation and you know listening to you speak about it again you know i was just struck by so many of the things that you know we've talked about already sort of the resilience the strength survival community um and it seems to me that the song poet really really just embodies all of that all of those values and so for anyone who is unfamiliar for some reason um with the story of the song poet and your family um Kalia, can you just sort of give um our listeners just a little um um, uh, taste of the story and how it came to be? Oh, delighted. So the story emerged as an idea, and it was an idea that I came into suddenly. My dad and 14 of his fellow co-workers in this factory um, were let go because they worked, the, they worked the night shift, and everybody on the night shift was being asked to run three or four machines, while all the people on the day shift only were asked to run one machine. And so they went to their supervisor and they said, can we talk about workplace safety? The supervisor said, I can replace you. If you want your jobs, then you go back to your stations. You know, and all of the men, my father included, knew that it wasn't gonna be about race. They understood keenly that it was the Hmong men who had been asked to eat the hot dogs that fell on the ground on employee appreciation day. Not the white people, the Hmong men who were asked to eat those hot dogs, but they wanted to talk about workplace safety. But the supervisor told them that they were replaceable and that they should go back to their stations. And my father and these men walked out. They walked out of their job hoping for a conversation. Um, letters arrived in the mail saying, you have purposely walked out on your jobs. If you don't return by tomorrow, then your positions are gonna be given to someone else and you will be terminated. You don't qualify for unemployment. So this is like 2012, Rocky. And I was then, of course, I had written one book and I was thinking about the second book. But I, I came home that day and my dad was getting ready as if to go to work, but there was nowhere to go. My father, because he has type two diabetes and he had been the, the main um, insurance carrier in our house, without the job, there'd be no health insurance. So he was spacing out his medications. So his eyes got redder and redder and redder. And he stopped looking us in the eyes but my dad was sitting there with nowhere to go. And I said to him, I said, daddy, why did you become a song poet? Out of the blue, I, I asked, 
He looked briefly at me, looked away again at the grass waving in the field. And he said, when I was young, there were few people to say beautiful things to me. My father died when I was two. Your grandmother had nine children to feed with a garden hoe the size of a palm. She went to the fields to feed us. I used to go from the house of one neighbor to the next, listening for the beautiful things that they had to say to each other. By myself, I whispered those words. One day it, it escaped on a sigh and a song was born. We're at the dining table. I'm like, wow. I'm like, daddy, maybe that's the beginning of my next book. He looks at me and he says, nobody wants to read a book of all a man like me, a man with rough hands. You know, my dad had been a polisher, the last guy on the line. And when you use human flesh to polish steel, it suffers. It's these incredibly rough hands. My dad loved Barack Obama. He loves Barack Obama. And of course, we, I was reading um, Dreams of My Father. You know, and my dad says to me, presidents write books about themselves. Who would want to read a book about a man like me? Then he looks away again. And Rocky, I've always had this stubborn heart. You know, when I was a little kid, my dad used to say, you're like the dog after the scent of a bone. You don't know when to let go. And so I sought to prove my father wrong. That was the birthplace of the song poet. I sought to prove my father wrong because I understood fundamentally that most of this world is built by men with rough hands. Men whose shoulders have been pushed down, not simply by gravity, but by other forces. And more importantly, I wanted to right a wrong in my way as a writer. I wanted to speak to the experiences of those other 14 Hmong men who were let go because they were replaceable. Not because they wanted to eat the hog dogs that everybody else ate, but because they knew that those machines would kill them if they didn't have that conversation. And so I started writing the book and across the, the process, the years that I was working on it, I'd ask my dad, daddy, do you wanna know what I'm writing? He'd look at me and look away and say, no, my, my father, I should say, is a beautiful song poet in the Hmong tradition. And so I'd say, daddy, are you sure? He'd say, yeah, I hate it when people interfere with my process. Don't let me do that to you. And then he'd laugh and he'd say, so much great art has died in talk. Don't do that to yourself. And so I'd written this book. And, um, and my dad, on the night that it came out, we were at the University of Minnesota History and Immigrant Center. And we launched it in front of 300 people. And my dad sat there and he wept, Rocky. And I couldn't look at him because every time I did, the words would get all choked up and they wouldn't come out. And so the whole night, I was the one who avoided my father's eyes. And afterward, in the car on the way home, I said, Daddy, how was it? He looked at me and he said, you got to write. No matter what happens to this book, um, you got to write and you have me. So that's the story of the song Poet. It's about this man who came to America, ready to let the songs die inside of him so that he might feed his children with his hands, but who found out in America, when your hands can't work fast enough, then they let you go and they let you fall. And sometimes you, you wait for those you love, you wait for those young hands you've been feeding to pull you up. It was my effort to pull up my dad. Oh my goodness, I was not expecting to be tearing up this morning. <laughs> my gosh, I should call my dad. Um, <laughs> thank you so much, Kalia, for that. that that's, a, that's a beautiful. I am 
absolutely just enamored with uh the way that that this story unfolded i'm i'm also just thinking about all the all the many stories that you know people are walking around thinking folks don't want to hear and that i i really want to hear i know i want to hear them <laughs> and i want to i am really curious to hear from from both of you and i think it would be a gift to our listeners if you could also just say like more about what the mon community in St. Paul and the Twin Cities is is like like how do you experience it growing growing up here like i as a you know uh occasional guest visitor, you know, have my experiences of, you know, the culture, the warmth, the community. Um, but yeah, could you describe it for, for our listeners? Like, what's it like here? I would say the Moan community in the metro area page is diverse and beautiful. There's so much culture and richness. And I think our Moan people, while um I, I I often say that we wear our hearts in our sleeves <laughs> and, you know, even though we may not have necessarily grown up in a culture where vocalizing your emotions is the norm, um, you know, we are such an open people, you know, whether it is um, the, the gatherings of our celebrations, be it a large wedding that's happening in a large celebration we're always welcoming of everybody around us and there's always more than enough food. And, um, you know, there's always the invitation to bring your friends, you know, and, and to share our culture and our community with them. I think we, um, where sometimes if, if you're unfamiliar with the Hmong community, um, can feel like a quiet community and, you know, and one that needs to be sought out. Um, but I think, you know, we have really impacted St. Paul in Minneapolis in very um, important and historical ways. You know, when our Hmong community first immigrated to Minnesota, we made up a large portion of the of the farmer's market, bringing our fresh produce and bringing our skills in and reviving that scene actually within the city. And we make up a, a good portion of business owners um, and educators. And, you know, we've been here for some time where we have, you know, individuals like Kalkalia and myself finding ourselves in these platforms and and these institutions where we we're starting to be able to expand our stories to people who may not have ever heard of us and and our history our very integrated intrinsic history specifically with America and and even the reason why you know we resettled here in the first place but I think you know if you are unfamiliar with the Hmong people and our culture I always invite people to seek us out um, because I I don't think that you're you'll you'll find that by being curious about us and by wanting to learn more about us that people are going to shut you out it I, I think it will actually be the complete opposite I love that Josie we have a saying in the community the house may be little but the heart is big you know and and I think that is so true of the spirit of Monas that I know too growing up in these cities so I was six years old and my family came here as refugees of war. And then we were the biggest wave of Hmong people to come into the country. The newspapers here said that if the Hmong could be integrated into American society, 
than anybody could because you are the most primitive, and here I quote, primitive people to have entered the country. If you look at the census, they will say that we are the most linguistically isolated group in America and among the poorest. If you look though at educational attainment, particularly among women and girls, we're one of the fastest moving group across the board. So we live in an incredibly complicated and seemingly contradictory society. Hmong, like so many other cultures as a patriarchal society, at the same time, many of the men were killed in that dreaded war. In the war, in the secret war in Laos, a third of the men were killed. And when I say men, there were 10, 11, and 12, and 13. If you go Google boy soldiers, photos of Hmong boys in American boots would, would be holding up guns all over. Most of the men and the boys have been killed. And so in my family, for example, was my grandma who raised nine children, seven of whom were boys into men. And growing up, no matter what the culture outside was telling me about the men in my community, I'd see my uncle unwalking like a mother duck, his children like ducklings. They'd all been trained mm. by, by a woman on how to be in the world, you know? In my family, there were stories of when I was born, how my older sister cried for my mother's breast to silence her. My father held the baby up so that she could suckle from his own breast to, to quiet her so she could fall into sleep. These are like some of the truths that govern the world that I know. In my family, and this is not just mine across my aunts and uncles, the women hold the money. Like if you have a school field trip, you don't go to your dad, you go to your mom because she has the money. You're like, mom, I'm going here. Do you, can you find $5 or Ordway tickets? Um, so in that way, I think there's a lot of stereotypes that govern my community, but they don't pan out if you look intimately into the houses and the homes of folk. Um, as a woman, and here I speak as somebody who's like 12 years older than Josie. If Josie's 30, I'm like a proud 42. Um, I was the first in my family to go away for college. I went to Carleton College and to sleep on campus and it wasn't, it was 45 minutes. It's 45 minutes south of the Twin Cities. But for my family, it could have been the world. And then I went on, of all things, not to become a doctor or a lawyer. These things that are across generations of Americans, immigrant families, or the hopeful expectations. Um, I went to New York City to become a writer. You know, in that way, and I remember having this conversation with my parents, and I think it's so illustrative of the conversations that go on across so many different communities. You know, I was so scared because I was going to tell them that I was not going to become a doctor, this hope for thing. My sister, who had won the North End Elementary School spelling bee in third grade, was going to become a lawyer because we thought she was the one who was good with words. Um, but I, I wanted to become a writer. My grandma had died. Her big fear was that she'd be forgotten. And I wanted to tell her all the ways in which I would never forget her. And I remember having this conversation around a rickety table on the east side of St. Paul. And my dad, he's, whenever my dad's worried, his thumbs start moving like this. And they're moving <laughs> faster and faster and faster. But my mom is sitting there and I, I share this thing in my heart. I say, mom and dad, I'm going to become a writer, not a, not a doctor. And my mom says, I'm not surprised. After everything, <laughs> I'm not surprised. You've always loved stories. My dad, you know, he stops his hands and he looks at me and he says, who am I to stand in your way? If the sky I lived under could fall on me, if the earth that I walk on can throw me off, who am I to stand in your way? 
this this thing that I've been so worried about all of a sudden I could see it and I think that is something that's so important how incredibly adaptive and progressive Hmong folk are you know often people want to cast our elders into the traditional but how could they have survived if they'd only been there we are a people mm -hmm. without a country yeah we look at each other and I see Josie is Hmong and Josie sees that I'm Hmong and somehow we remain a people despite the fact that no map in the world has Hmong land anywhere on it it is this mountain we have in our hearts that we climb and we climb to be together. We climb to be one people. I think that's an incredibly scary thing from a political perspective in a world so profoundly enamored with nation states and boundaries and borders. What does it mean if you have a people who can be a people unto themselves with no land of their own? And so we are like this threat as well, this philosophical political threat um, and I, I think that explains so much of how we've been written of by white folk predominantly and how we are advertised to the rest of the world. Backwards, primitive, poor, uneducated, everything else. Ooh, that was powerful. And I think there's certainly quite a bit that... Uh definitely other people of color other folks who have been refugees in this nation particularly and had to deal with the nation states and borders that you speak of and being rendered landless or placeless by you know the powers that be it's resonating it's resonating clear <laughs> um and it also resonates with me too right and as you were talking Kalia as Paige suggested like I was definitely having all of these images of um, things that resonated personally with me right as we think about Black History Month just having passed and what it means for us to be a, a people from a lot of diverse places that have sort of been made into a people um, as a consequence of choices um, and actions that were not our own, right? And and being displaced from land that we could call our own as well. I've been thinking a lot about the relationship between the Black community and the Hmong community um, and, and what may be complicated and what may be shared about that relationship. And I would love to hear if either of you had any perspectives about it because coming into the Twin Cities from a different place it was something that I was making a lot of observations about but I was making observations without a ton of context right um, so if there's any perspectives you can have especially for our listeners who are not Twin Cities based um, and and you know maybe haven't really experienced what the relationship between those communities might look like so I remember when we first came here, we lived in the housing projects and these housing projects had been built by after World War II for returning white soldiers from the war essentially. But of course they stood and so they, when we came here, they welcomed a different kind of soldier in, into, into these housing projects. By the time the Hmong folk came, the white people were long gone and there were a few native families and black families. And so my first neighbors and friends were black and native kids and other refugees, like uh, Southeast Asian refugees, so Vietnamese. Um, and then, of course, when we moved out of those refugees, we went to Section 8 housing. 
and, and more low-income neighborhoods, and they continue to be my neighbors and my friends. And so in many ways, when I go to school, I see white people. But when I came home, there was like one or two white people in the neighborhood, maybe. And mostly they were scared of the rest of us. There was one or two kids who wanted to play, but mostly they were isolated. So I have this memory, Lee, of being standing at a bus stop and, you know, I'm there. My hair is, you know, coarse, straight. And there's this African-American girl and her hair was very different. And so we asked if we could touch each other's hair. And that's what we did. And we were touching each other's hair. And when this white bus driver came to pick us up, the bus driver was so, um, I could see so troubled by what we were doing, but there was such innocence and such beauty in that interaction. And, and that is, you know, and that is the fact that we never talk about how impoverished neighborhoods come together, how these immigrants and like these, these um, decades of like poverty, what they've done in terms of our, our housing in cities like the Twin Cities, but elsewhere as well. And so white folk were the big strangers. They were my big encounter when I went to college and stayed in that dorm and Muster Hall at Carleton when I became like one of two Asian uh, people on my floor. And the only other one was a lonely black boy. That's when whiteness really entered fully into my world. And the truth is that this is something that people never talk about. Shannon Gibney, who's also a writer in these cities from Minneapolis, we are dear friends. And whenever we do interviews together, people are shocked because there's a, there's a black woman and an Asian woman and they're really comfortable together and they clearly love each other. And this is an image that we never get in mainstream media. Like how many shows are there on TV? Uh, do we see that depicted in a healthy and wholesome way? We don't. And, and so I think that is a truth that we've not talked about enough. And this doesn't complicate the fact that anti-blackness is real and that there is a very, uh, like a wariness about the newest strangers. In, in, in the landscape, right? But I'll also tell another story. So we, I grew up on the east side, across on the other side of Maryland. I came back home, Rocky. I wanted to raise my kids here. So I, <laughs> I did something that I never thought I would do because growing up, I was always so keenly aware that when the bus came this way, it was dropping off the poor kids. And we were as likely to kick empty bottles along the sidewalks as balls. And so I thought when I was young that one day I would grow up and get a job and I move everybody I love away. But then, of course, you grow up and you realize, oh, I'm exactly who I am because of these places. And I love these people. So I want to come back. So I've returned. But um, growing up on the other side of Maryland, there would be these robberies. And we were just robbing each other, Rocky. You know, one time my grandma died. We were at my uncle's all the time. We came back and our house had been ransacked. Even the kids, even their, their like plastic um, coin containers had been taken. TV and VCR and stuff. We called the we called the police. Of course, there was nothing they could do. Um, my siblings and I were incredibly impressed by the weapon of choice, which was the leg of a the leg of a table with like nails sticking out of it. We thought it was so original. Whoever had come into our home had left us two of these weapons, and we were completely to my mom and dad's consternation, like impressed with the architecture of the thing, but. Uh, several months later, we my my sister had gone to school and she came back. She didn't have a key, so she needed the phone. She knocked on our neighbor's house, and of course, we were friends. So he let her in, and we went. She went in. And our TV was there, and the kids' containers were there, and the father was deeply embarrassed, deeply, deeply embarrassed. Um, 
but then she walked out again and we never did anything about it. You know, that was the kind of neighborhood that raised me. You know, it was, I, they taken, there was a trespass, but it was so clear that, that, that we were also poor, you know, and it was so clear that they hadn't really wanted to hurt anybody because that could have easily happened, you know, and that's the kind of, that's my relationship to, to poverty. It, it's a relationship among people of color of a certain demographic living in these, these hoods that have raised me. You know, recently, I, I'm a Harding High School graduate. Recently, there was a, a stabbing, a fatal stabbing at Harding High School, which, of course, broke my heart. But it also brought me back. When I was there, um, there was a shootout. And somebody had gotten seriously injured. And the next day before this kid was taken by the by the police, he requested a song be played on the radio for the whole school. And the song was, Please Forgive Me. Brian Adams, I think, please, please forgive me. And these things, these realities and these truths are so hard to articulate and nobody wants to articulate them because it would force a reckoning with the systemic racism that permeates this place, this country, this world. Yeah, I'm so happy to be following your comments, Kalia, because I, I think what that brings to light uh, for me is the trope of the Black and Asian conflict. And I think um, it's 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 a unique duality to work with, right? The reality that, that there is absolutely anti-Blackness in the Asian community and the reality that... Um, uh, and and the reality of of being weary, as Scalia said, of of, um, of 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 individuals, you know, new inhabitants of our Asian communities coming in, layered with the model minority myth, and and the damage that that does, you know, across multiple communities, that duality and existence with the reality that there is solidarity between our communities, but why is it that the media so deeply focuses? on the conflict and where is that really stemming from and 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 what are the true motives behind that and who are those stories coming from right who's in charge of releasing those stories it's it's um you know myself as a Hmong woman dating a black man these are the dualities that I am in constant conversation with with um with with my loved ones and the introspection that I, that I have often I do think, you know, speaking to Lee's question, specifically, I think in Minnesota, you know, we do live in a very homogenous state. Individuals are are keen to sticking with the individuals that they know. Um, you know, we are very historical based. We are very historically based in our relationships, right? This is my family. These are my friends I grew up with. These are friends that I went to college with. And so I think when you layer that particular cultural aspect with the Asian and Black relationships, it becomes very nuanced in a way that I would imagine might be very different if you're, you know, elsewhere and if you're if you're in a larger city on the East Coast or in the West Coast. What does it look like specifically in our metropolis here in Minnesota? So I I appreciate actually your opening, Clea, of this um of the of the beauty and and the innocence of of relationships and how they are formed 
before we become inundated by the narratives of society and by the systemic oppressors around us. Yeah. Thank you both uh, for that, because this is a it's an issue that for various reasons of, of uh, biography and genetics that I am always very curious about. Um, and it's something that I don't think we talk about, like certainly in the black community. Right. We, we talk a lot about the relationship between the black community and the white community, like so much so that it permeates any number of conversations. But what those relationships look like with other communities of color um, don't always get the benefit of full, honest conversation. So I, I appreciate both of your perspectives. Thank you. Yeah, and I appreciate what you uplifted about about place, Josie, too, because I think I've I've also encountered talking to, you know, friends from other cities and especially metro areas who don't quite understand they seem to understand the racial makeup of the twin cities they're like you seem to be in really close proximity to folks who are indigenous who are east african who are Hmong, or across the asian diaspora and people commented especially you know during the 2020 uprisings they were like I have never seen that many non-black people out in the street after someone black was murdered by police and I was like well yeah like you have to understand here that there's a certain um like our our class put our plush oppression you know kind of puts us in much closer proximity to each other than I think other cities and that's something that like I think might be unique to I think a lot of Midwest cities too. I'm from Detroit and you know my dad talks about growing up with like a lot of folks who are Greek who um were like Eastern European um and yeah they were they were neighbors they they played together he you know they grew up trying each other's foods and and all of that and it's like yeah, that innocence that that that's there, and then you know there's a narrative that's created of, of division. Usually, anti-blackness is often the thing that's able to get in there um, because this country's just built on it. But yeah, yeah, Absolutely. it's interesting. Absolutely, Paige. And and just to extend off of your thoughts, I think it makes me think about why it is easier to rely on, on the tropes of conflict between these communities. Because yeah. when we're thinking about trauma and when we think about healing, right, when we mm. stay in our trauma, it, you know, when, when we stay in our trauma, it holds us back from healing, and I think when we focus on the solidarity between communities, what does that then highlight? Well, instead of highlighting the conflict amongst these communities and within these individuals, we're uplifting, right? We're uplifting the strength and the beauty and um, the intelligence and the abilities of of black people and of Asian people. And oh goodness, if we start focusing on the positives and if we start highlighting, you know, the abilities of these communities rather than focusing on the negatives, again, how does that work within our systemic, uh, how does that work 
within these systems, right? These systems mm -hmm. of oppression. And what might that actually do to start shifting these power dynamics when we begin to focus on the power within these communities that systemically we've been trying to push down? Um, so thank you for your thoughts on that page. I just wanted to add that piece. Ashe. <laughs> And I'll just include a story because I found it so heartwarming. One of the gifts of me of my work is that I get to travel quite a bit. And when I went to visit the fourth biggest Hmong community in the U.S., so this is North Hickory, like Hickory, North Carolina, so the South, so you know, so from the Midwest to the South, um, and I was so um, surprised to see that most Hmong funeral homes, because Hmong funerals are generally three days, twenty-four hours a day, and I'm a security cat. And a lot of my, I think a lot of Hmong folk of my generation are as well. We have so many scary stories. We're haunted by so many things. But in the Deep South, what I discovered was that during Hmong funerals, it'd be a lot of Black folk coming to do the overnight shifts with them. Not white folk, but Black folk. I went in and I'm like, wow, what's going on here? And they're explaining to me because they know that so, so much of the Hmong community is so rich in superstition and like these, these fears. Um, it was their black neighbors who were coming and helping do the overnight shift. So they were playing games and, you know, eating rice and beef stew. Um, and, and it was something that I, because of the tropes of the South, because of, again, these tropes that we all grow up with, you know, I was like, oh, that's so beautiful. And I'm like, just like up North, just like up North. And again, there's so many of these communities living together, I think across the U.S. that we don't get access to when we don't talk about these insider connections and relationships, these kind of foundational understandings. What does it mean when somebody we love dies? How do we say goodbye together? That's beautiful and also makes perfect sense because as soon as you said it, I was like, yeah, we have traditions of like sitting with the body overnight and over, yeah. <laughs> well, y'all, this has been such a beautiful conversation. I just looked at the clock and <laughs> this just flew by <laughs> because I'm just enjoying this conversation so much. I could talk to both of you all day long. Um, but before we, we sign off, um, do both of you have things that are coming up? Where can people follow you if they want to learn more about your work and, and what's next for Kalia and Josie? Uh, well, for myself, Josephine, if individuals want to follow my art, they can go to my uh, website or my Instagram handles, Blink Artisan. My website is blinkartisan.com. So it's currently showing my um, uh, my photography journey. Um, and in the future, I hope to share more of my poetry and, um, you know, my process as a singer songwriter um, as an expanded portfolio on that website as well. So holler. Nice. <laughs> absolutely right after this Josie I will visit your site I'm so excited <laughs> um, so uh, 2023 is we have this opera um, and I'm working on lots of things but in 2024 my next big book for uh, a work of creative nonfiction will come out early in the year where the rivers part my mother's story as well as five other children's books so a lot of publishing oh, wow. coming, yeah in 2024 <laughs> So gearing up for that run, um, but you can follow me or my activities on my websites, www.kaukaliayang.com. 
Fantastic. And all of that will be in the show notes as usual. So everybody can go check that out. And as we mentioned at the top of the interview, the song poet opens tomorrow. Libretto by fabulous Kalkalia Yang, music by Jocelyn Hagen, um, and will be presented at the Luminary Arts Center in collaboration with Theater Moo. Um, I think right now all of the tickets are sold out, but if you want to learn more about the show and if anything changes with that, um, please go visit mnopera.org. And I think stay tuned because there will be more opportunities to see the show later this summer and fall. So once again, Josephine Yang, Kao Kalia Yang, thank you so, so much for being here. And and actually, funny story, Kalia and I just found out that we are neighbors. So this spring, when we are not under um, 12 feet of snow, you'll have to come over and have a drink in the garden. Well, everyone's invited. <laughs> so. Thank you. Thank you. And yeah. Rocky, you don't know this, but I've enjoyed your candy for numerous Halloweens now. Oh, okay, cool. Like <laughs> Usually I'm down in the basement. So my husband handles that. Oh, well, <laughs> please thank your husband for all the candies. I will. I will. A generous yeah. house. A generous house. We do what we can. I mean, I feel like king size is is the way to go. You know. Wow, <laughs> all right. Well, right. Thank, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, thank you all so much for being here. And we will be right back with Pure Black Joy. Watch on the... Thanks, everyone. And we are back, my God. What two brilliant human beings. <laughs> that was extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, the eloquence, God. the depth. Yes, yeah. yes, absolutely. Um, but it is now time to turn our attention uh, to our favorite segment. Pedro, you're ready. Ready, Freddy. And a one, and a two, and a one, two, three, four. It's peanut butter jelly time, peanut butter jelly time, peanut butter jelly time, peanut butter jelly, peanut butter jelly, peanut butter jelly with a baseball bat, peanut butter jelly, peanut butter jelly, peanut butter jelly with a baseball bat, peanut butter jelly, peanut butter jelly, PB and J time. I feel like you put like your whole chest into it, like in a way you haven't done in like months. You know what makes the difference? I I have to dance when I do it. I have to move when I do it. So you know, I gotta snap my fingers. I gotta all of that. It makes a difference. Okay. Okay. (laughs) I liked it. So we'll have to, and and you got both of us moving too. Okay, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. okay. No, we were dancing. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, so this is Pure Black Joy. <laughs> <laughs> this is the segment where we talk about the uh, pure Black things and people and places and ideas and music and culture um, that is making us happy this week. And I've been having a busy week. I could use some cheering up. So <laughs> <laughs> what do y'all got? I got something. Okay. Well, I got two things technically. Um, one is personal, just that um I got my tickets to the Renaissance tour. <laughs> oh yeah. I got my tickets to see Beyonce floor seats, baby, in oh. Minneapolis. Period. We will be in the number, we will be in formation. We yes, uh-huh. I'm Fabulous. so excited. Me and my partner are gonna have a 
good ratchet time. Yeah, sketch our whole life. Uh, oh my yeah. Goodness. Uh, but we'll have yeah. to try and link up. We're not on the floor because we're over forty. Um, (laughs) 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 before after the show great great my my plan is to maybe um just be like so fly right and Mm -hmm. just so lit that they have to let us into club renaissance (laughs) into the club renaissance sections Mm -hmm. for those who don't know beyonce got a special little section of her stage Mm -hmm. that's like in the middle of the stage and that's called club renaissance with their own bar and their own little situation and like the stage goes around them so beyonce is gonna be dancing around you and so my plan is just to again just be so fly also i feel like this album is about black queer trans Mm -hmm. joy right so i feel like they should just see us and be like y'all should move up yes why not right right Mm -hmm. i'm i'm keeping hope alive (laughs) 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 but my actual pure black joy is related (laughs) just that i've been listening to i've been like listen to a lot of like house and and techno kind of music lately and i'm really enjoying this uh radio show called underground in black oh, um okay. it is hosted by uh, an amazing dj musician named ash lauren uh she is from detroit is you know house head techno head knows like the history and all that and really just made this show to uplift our um presence in these music genres not just our presence mm-hmm. but the fact that we created them mm-hmm. hello um mm-hmm. so underground and black has been giving me so much joy i've just been putting it on in the background and you know dancing around as i as i do stuff and you know feeling that the house grooves and mm-hmm. she'll have different mm-hmm. featured djs and things like that who are also black on the show so you know if you want to check that out uh try different type of music i definitely recommend underground and black it's been making me really happy that's mm, awesome that's great well mr bynum well um time magazine uh just yesterday announced their women of the year there were 12 women who were selected by time, and two of them are two of our favorites on the show, Miss Quinta Brunson and Angela Evelyn Bassett. I cannot yes! think of two Angela people Bassett who deserve it more. <laughs> I can't believe we're just now bringing that up. <laughs> and the I'm world so sorry, lost Ariana. their minds. I'm so sorry, Ariana, but... <laughs> okay, that's that's my pure black joy. Angela Which tickled Angela too, right? So yes. like she said when she won the NAACP award, right. she was like, I guess Angela Bassett did the thing. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt. <laughs> no, that's actually a great, complete encapsulation of everything I was going to say. <laughs> they both did the thing, and it's good to see. It's good to see this recognition because I feel like um, black actresses and and cert- certainly black writers, right, are 
are frequently not seen, not acknowledged. Um, and it just feels good that, you know, folks who are doing this really high level of work are getting the acknowledgement. And especially in Angela's case, I, I feel like she's literally been like a top tier actress my entire life. And it's something that kind of has gone under the radar outside of black mm -hmm. context. So it makes me really happy every piece of acknowledgement she's getting this season. I think she deserves it. And the same with Quinta. Abbott Elementary is is like one of my is a highlight of my week every week. I think it's such a cute and, and funny show. So I'm super excited for both of them. And yeah, and the other 10 ladies on the list are also super deserving, um, mm -hmm. even if they're not a part of my pbj for the week yeah i um i uh, that little clip of quinta and janelle james from the sag awards it just, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it just it's just like it doesn't matter what <laughs> what quinta does she just tickles me yeah <laughs> her and janelle together are just yeah. Janelle, I was, she's what a, a comedic duo <laughs> <laughs> and then I was scrolling on TikTok, TikTok last night and um, that um, black lady courtroom sketch have you seen it yes. came up. it's so funny <laughs> from, the, I'm from black lady sketch show um, and it's got Quinta in it and Issa Rae and an Yvette Nicole Brown and like it's just like about a, a courtroom where everyone, the bailiff, the stenographer, the judge, the prosecutor, the defense attorney, they all realize that they're black women. <laughs> and they're just like, this is a historic occasion. And it's just so funny. <laughs> um, but I don't know, can my pure black joy be shady? Is that allowed? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> because I just, it just tickled me. Like, first of all, if y'all have not watched the Real Housewives of Potomac reunion, it's just ridiculous. Um, I've heard things. It's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I saw a tweet from Jamal Hill um, that was like, I learned a, a lesson a long time ago not to ask a Black woman over the age of 60 their opinion, because they are going to tell you the full and complete truth. And that was in <laughs> reference to um, Auntie uh, Shaka Khan, who had some things to say <laughs> about that Rolling Stone Rolling Stone's greatest singers of all time list. And she had smoke for Mariah, for Adele for Mary J and y'all it just it was so funny <laughs> <laughs> and she's right too because like y'all need to give her her flowers my goodness number 29 that's ridiculous but of course yeah. that list was insane you know how are we having Taylor Swift Swifties don't come after me anywhere near that list she Great was of, on it? yes but, but we're talking about singers Yes, Vocalist. not gowns, not beautiful gowns. Vocalist oh, wow. and not and not overall performance. We're mm -hmm. talking singers for for her vocals. Yes. Mm. I mean, y'all keep reading these Rolling Stone lists if y'all want to. I I just <laughs> <laughs> I just do not. <laughs> um, but 
but shout out to Shaka Khan because you are a legend. Yeah. Um, yes. And you deserve all the wonderful things in life. And you better get those Rolling Stone people. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's all I got. It's been a long week. It's I'm ready to take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> get some food and take a nap. And I highly recommend all of you do that as well. Um and all of the things. What what are all the things that we say? Right, subscribe to the show. <laughs> <laughs> that would be helpful. And tell all your friends about us. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Um, five stars, please. Mm-hmm. And some words would be nice. Mm-hmm. You know, if you are listening to this show and you haven't done that, I don't understand why. Don't you want us to succeed? Don't you want a podcast to succeed? <laughs> <laughs> My God. <laughs> Five stars. Words, please. Um, and of course really we want to thank. Yes. Yes, it does. It does. It does. 100 percent It really does. It really does. And of course, we want to thank Kalkalia Yang and Josephine Yang for being with us today. Um, go see the song poet. Check out mnopera.org. Uh, there's some added performances. I believe there's still some tickets left. Um, so uh, go get you one because it's going to be spectacular. And uh, what am I missing? What am I forgetting? You're supposed to say something about any words of wisdom. Yes. Do y'all have any words of wisdom? No. <laughs> Mm. (laughs) (laughs) oh i I do have something i I have something uh uh, and important and timely oh okay uh uh uh, respect trans folks yes Yes. protect trans kids Yes. yes yes and just like mind your business <laughs> how about that <laughs> as someone who is who is trans i want y'all to mind your business like for real like this is just and go tell somebody that they're not actually uh uh, uh doing surgeries on kids and stuff and they got to get at least a year of therapy and counseling before any of that happens even if you're an adult so anyway yeah that's my words of wisdom <laughs> I love it. Thank you for for mentioning that because yes, 100%. And governor of Tennessee. You can get lost. I mean. (laughs) F you and F that. That's all I have to say about that. But Arkansas too. And I seen the news this morning. Mm -hmm. Probably a whole lot of and a lot of a lot, a of, lot of other places yeah, yeah. unfortunately yeah. but yeah protect trans folks protect trans kids and mind your business <laughs> <laughs> thank you <Paige. laughs> and we're gonna leave it there um because i think that's where we need to leave it <laughs> um we will be back in two weeks and um we'll see you then bye y'all bye.